Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Welcome. This is New Year's Eve on The Roger Stone Show. I'm Roger Stone, and of course, we're brought to you by 77 WABC Radio, the crown jewel of AM radio, where we're making talk radio great again. For the next two hours, we're going to be talking news, politics, history, lawfare, and, well, illegal immigration. But before that, I have a little tradition of my own I want to talk about. On this New Year's Day, I'm returning to a tradition, and for the 15th year, uh, tomorrow, on New Year's Day, I will post my international best and worst dressed list. I undertook this tradition when the late Mr. Blackwell, a a Hollywood columnist who produced his own list every year for 48 years, passed away in 2008. Now, I published no list in 2020 because I was gagged from all public content by a federal judge, and I published no list for 2021 because my wife, who had just been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, from which I'm happy to report she's in total remission, the time just wasn't right. But now I'm back to the 15th year of producing this list. It gets harder every year to come up with a list of the best and worst dressed ladies and gentlemen in the world. Uh, And that was prior to the development of the transgendered phenomena in which men wear women's clothes and vice versa. Uh, I got to admit that makes it even more difficult. Now, my international best and worst dressed list, which I'm going to tease tonight, give you a little preview of what I'm publishing tomorrow, is not political. Uh, As I would note, uh, the late Senator Ted Kennedy was once on my best dress list. In fact, he was on it for several years. Uh, MAGA podcaster Steve Bannon once again graces our worst dress list this year. The list is nonpartisan, entirely non-ideological. And I have to fight the urge to inject politics into it because, well, as you know, I'm a political animal. Blackwell spent decades reporting on who were the very best and worst dressed people in the world. His scorn or imprimatur could be the kiss of death or the key to the city for an aspiring actress or socialite or business titan. And his withering criticisms could destroy the up and coming. We have kept this tradition. I've been writing this list since 2020, uh, 2003, pardon me, uh, but this year will be no different. 
Uh, now, this past year has been uh, a whirlwind of political, social, and cultural calamities. It's also been populated with some of the best and worst sartorial events around the globe. There have been legendary statements of impeccable taste and utterly shocking crimes against not only good taste, but the basic tenets of true style. Once again, I must remind you that while fashion is fleeting, style is timeless and enduring. Skirts may go up or down, neckties may become wider or thinner, but the double-breasted navy blue blazer with gold military buttons will always be in style. The little black cocktail dress will always look smashing. A seersucker suit is always appropriate between Memorial Day and Labor Day. Now, we've made this point in the past, but I feel it necessary to make it again, that in this age of sartorial error, when a lot of people just don't care about how they look when they go out in public, it's kind of like my basic rules. Don't order fish in a steakhouse. In the same vein, you wouldn't wear a jean jacket to a wedding and you wouldn't show up in a three-piece suit in a bowling alley. Workout clothes are for the gym, not the mall. Uh, as I noted in my 2018 book, Stone's Rules, which included a foreword from my friend Tucker Carlson, the best-dressed person is the one who's appropriately dressed for the activity in which they intend to engage. It's amazing how many people don't get this simple rule. Ultimately, uh, I had to uh, formulate a lifetime achievement category that became necessary when a handful of true dandies and swans dominated the list for several years. In order to create room for the up and coming, we moved certain people to this special lifetime achievement category. Among those in the lifetime achievement category, is a WABC a radio host, Larry Kudlow, not to mention CNN's Mike Smirkanish, presidential daughter Ivanka Trump, NBC's Josh Mankiewicz, CBS sports legend Shannon Sharp, rocker Mark Ronson, New York City PR whiz Audrey Gelman, all of them have graced our best and worst dressed list, but they graduating to our lifetime achievement category for best dressed. This year, however, former and future First Lady Melania Trump, honored on my list in many previous years, joins the lifetime achievement category. America has not had a more stylish, chic, cultured and well-dressed first lady since, well, Jackie Kennedy. No one has deserved the cover of Vogue more. We salute all of those in our lifetime achievement category, uh, but here's the sneak peek of those who joined the Pantheon this year. We start with uh, New York City Mayor Eric Adams. Now, while the mayor of New York City may be under fire in a corruption scandal, 
and for the invasion of illegal immigrants in New York City, not to mention rising crime and other issues facing Gotham, it never deters him from being one of the most best-turned-out dressers I've ever seen. His use of the timeless Windsor knot and his widespread collar remains one of his most consistent and clear themes to the public regarding his sartorial grace. Adams has also wisely uh, embraced proper form-fitting tailoring and never allows patterns to clash. Uh, Let's face it, like him or dislike him, Eric Adams is the best-dressed mayor of the Big Apple since Bo James. That would be Mayor Jimmy Walker. Uh, Also uh, on my best-dressed list, none other than Greg Kelly, right here at WABC Radio. Now, Greg Kelly adheres to the KISS method, K-I-S-S, as in keep it simple, stupid. When he's preparing for a live show, a television broadcast, or his time right here at WABC, one cannot underestimate this approach. Uh, We all have moments when we take chances with our wardrobe. I guess that's understandable. But what I like about Greg Kelly is his consistency. He always looks well turned out. Uh, Now, a couple years ago, Greg Kelly said he was contemplating publishing his own best and worst dress list. He wisely changed his mind, and of course now he's on my list. When he mused uh, on social media about taking over authorship of this list on an annual basis, in all honesty, I told him he could have it uh, when I died and not before. Along with uh, others on our best dress list, Marianne Williamson, you may have heard her. She's a Democratic presidential candidate. She's a new age proponent who could easily be uh, the mother at a sleepover, but implores you to explore the power of mystical crystals. But any way you slice it, she is a fashion and style icon. She has the figure adventurous attitude and courage to try the idea of a female pantsuit. Uh, And when wearing a pantsuit, well, Williamson puts Hillary Clinton to shame. She wears a suit better than most men. No, Marianne Williamson means business. Now let's turn to some on our worst dress list. How can I fail to mention Florida Governor Ron DeSantis? When I met this guy, he didn't even own a suit. You can't be governor of Florida and wearing a blazer and ill-fitting slacks all the time. Not only are his presidential ambitions imploding faster than the Hindenburg, but his affection for these bargain bin suits and the Tom Cruise platform shoes or cowboy boots with lifts in them, well, they become a legend of their own. Uh, his next times are tied lazily, usually askew. His suits are too big, uh, well, and the smile too rehearsed. Uh, the only thing worse than his poorly fitting suits may be the waste of hundreds of millions of dollars in donor money in this foolhardy quest for the presidency. But a governor ought to be better dressed. 
Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention First Lady Jill Biden. Uh, apparently, she may have gotten a doctorate degree, but she never studied anything about style or fashion uh, in her decades-long schooling. She favors floral designs that belong on a tablecloth, not on the leader of the not on the wife, pardon me, of the leader of the free world. Uh, it looks like something that belongs at a family gathering around holidays, but not on humans on the table. Let's face it: the first lady of the United States should not be wearing kitchen curtains uh, as a frock. Uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. This guy really aggravates me. Uh, the leader of Ukraine has spent far too many occasions dressed down as he comes to America hat in hand looking for billions from us as well as other foreign leaders. But you have to wonder, does this guy even own a suit? I mean, the military-style sweaters might make him feel better, Perhaps he thinks the imagery is better, but shouldn't he at least put on a suit and tie when addressing a joint session of Congress? Winston Churchill did. Now, we understand he's in a conflict, but entertaining Hollywood actors and traveling to the floors of the U.S. Congress does not give him the right to dress like a hooligan. We've given this guy billions of dollars. If you're going to come to America to ask for more, couldn't you at least put on your Sunday best? Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Senator John Fetterman. Although he was seen recently once in a suit, uh, the U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania has notoriously possessed the sartorial habits of a hobo. This guy is serving America and Pennsylvania in the United States Senate, but he dresses in a hoodie, sweatpants, uh, and a baggy T-shirt. And the sweatpants are cutoffs. Fetterman tries to play it off as, well, this is just my working class energy. But far from it. I guarantee you, even Steve Doors in the Port of Philadelphia would show more class and show up dressed right for the job they have. Karen Jean-Pierre, the White House Communications Director, God, it's just awful. We understand that her job explaining the merits of the Biden administration is tough, but it seems she spends more time spinning the dismal economic results than she does selecting her outfits for the big event. I won't address her makeup, uh, but let's just say once again, Hillary Clinton does the pantsuit better than Jean Pierre. Now, she is a step above former communications director Jen Psaki, but, well, that's not saying much. Going back to our best category, uh, I have to mention uh, Tom Brady, the Super Bowl champion. This guy's got the jawline. He's got the look. He's got the championship ring. Uh, and while it's understandable that many of his public appearances feature him in sports or leisure wear, 2023 has seen this goat lean towards a more relaxed James Dean style, 
But even when he's appearing in simplistic outfits, like a sleek black leather jacket, uh, matched with a sweater or T-shirt, Tom Brady always looks great. And when he wears a suit, there is none better. If you're just tuning in, folks, this is Roger Stone. This is our special New Year's Eve edition of the Roger Stone Show. Uh, and I'm delving into my 15th annual international best and worst dressed list, which I uh, picked up as a tradition from the late uh, Mr. Blackwell. Like many of you, I'm going to miss Guy Lombardo tonight, but I will crack up, uh, crack open a bottle of champagne. In all honesty, I preferred to stay home tonight, but, well, Mrs. Stone saw the invitation to President Trump's manse at Mar-a-Lago, and therefore I'm putting on a monkey suit and we're heading north to Palm Beach tonight. But I'm glad to have an opportunity to give you a sneak preview of my international best and worst dressed list. Uh, Charlene, the Prince of Monaco, is on my best dressed. Her Royal Highness has spent decades attracting attention for innovative, diverse, and stunning style, similar to the late Princess Diana, although... Sorry, she always will remain far ahead of the curve. Apologies to Prince Albert. This native South American Olympic swimmer has a broader build than most of her contemporaries, but she does not let that stop her from turning heads. You'll see her on page six, her ability to facilitate between basic bell-bottoms and blouses to a more formal evening gown or any attire for royal occasions demonstrates it's always a matter of being in your very best to be considered in the pinnacle of style or fashion and to make this list. What can I say about Steve Bannon? I think the man chases down hobos to get his clothes. Uh, either that or he's dumpster diving. Uh, I don't understand the button-down shirt on top of the button-down shirt or the six pens that he has clipped uh, in his shirt. It's kind of a whole fat Johnny Cash vibe that he's got going on, usually all in black. Uh, would it really hurt for him to shave or wash his hair? Unkempt, slovenly, inappropriate. Yet millions follow him on his net-based TV show. So what do I know? In my view, he has a face for radio. Somebody needs to say something to Bill Belichick, the championship NFL coach. Can somebody get this guy a suit? Maybe a proper-fitting tracksuit even? Anything that doesn't make him look absolutely offensive? A lot has been written and said about his lack of style, but what more can we actually say? He looks like a man checked into a Boston motel on a bender, not a Super Bowl winning coach. A couple of uh, special mentions will pop up in this year's list. Charles Payne, Fox 
TV news understands that even for the larger man, you can select outfits that minimize your bulk. Charles Payne's well-tailored suits and tasteful neckwear always hit the mark. Actually, no one does pinstripes better. Now, he's been on our list previous years, uh, but one thing is absolutely clear. His personal style is as on-spot as his on-air style. Charles Payne, another year on our very best-dressed list. Folks, uh, turn in, tune in to the Stone Show for politics, and, well, today is no uh, exception. We bring you um, uh, a great lineup today. Uh, David Schoen, criminal defense lawyer, uh, who represented President Donald Trump uh, in his impeachment, uh, joins us to talk about the efforts to remove Trump from the ballot. Uh, also, the struggle over presidential immunity with special counsel Jack Smith. Christy Hutcherson, a leading expert on ballot security, joins us to discuss the crisis on our southern border uh, and what it means for New York City. Uh, and then Democratic strategist Hank Sheinkoff joins us to analyze the federal, state, and local political situations. There is literally no one in American politics, and Hank's in a different party than I am, but no one I respect more when it comes to their judgment and assessment of national politics. Uh, before the end of the show today, I'm going to tell you who I like as President Donald Trump's running mate. Uh, in the meantime, uh, as you may know, uh, it's only about two weeks before the make or break Iowa caucuses. Now, a, a caucus is different than a primary. Uh, in a primary, you just walk in, uh, you vote, uh, and you leave. In a caucus on a cold January night in Iowa, where it can get quite chilly, uh, you have to show up at a meeting, stay uh, for a, uh, could be a 45-minute to an hour meeting, uh, to cast your vote. Now, the latest polls are in in Iowa, but I stress to you that polling uh, is hard to do in a primary because it's very hard to determine exactly how many people will turn out. The last competitive Iowa caucus poll was 2016. Uh, and in 2016, 125,000 Stout Republicans showed up for the caucuses. This year, they're projecting as many as 185,000. Perhaps that's because the race has gotten so much more coverage. But for the first time in a new Fox business poll, Donald Trump has broken 50% uh, of the vote in Iowa. Trump leads with 34% in this new Fox Business-sponsored poll, uh, leaving Ron DeSantis at 18, 
Nikki Haley at 16, Vivek Ramaswamy at 7, uh, and Chris Christie at 3. I've seen polls that actually show Nikki Haley pulling ahead. But again, as I stress, it's extraordinarily hard to poll a caucus because you don't know exactly who will turn out. Uh, and to just show you how temporary and volatile our politics are, as you may have seen late last week, well, Nikki Haley stepped in deep doo-doo, as former President George H.W. Bush would say. When asked uh, what the Civil War was about, she came up with an answer that didn't mention slavery. That's what it was about. Perhaps uh, her answer was better calibrated for South Carolina, but not very well collaborated uh, for, uh, for uh, rural northern New Hampshire. Let me explain to you in the time we have left uh, exactly how this works. You see, expectations are everything. In 1964, uh, at the height of the Vietnam War, when New York Senator Robert Kennedy declined to challenge sitting President Lyndon Johnson, Senator Eugene McCarthy from Minnesota stepped forward to launch a challenge uh, to LBJ. Uh, and when the dust had settled, Johnson had 54% of the vote in New Hampshire, but McCarthy had 38 the media coverage said that McCarthy won. Why? Because he exceeded expectations. He was expected to poll in single digits. So it will be, in a certain sense, with Donald Trump. If the event is Trump coming in a solid first by, let's say, 20 points, but if Nikki Haley defeats Ron DeSantis, who is once again expected to be second, well, the story will then be Haley uh, beats DeSantis in upset. Trump comes in first as expected. See how that works? Now, if that were to come to pass, that would give Nikki Haley uh, the big mo momentum going into New Hampshire's primary, where Donald Trump, once again, maintains a solid double-digit lead. If that happens, it's important to note that almost 8 out of 10 of the DeSantis voters have Donald Trump as their second choice, meaning if the DeSantis candidacy collapses after Iowa, which is what I expect to happen, those votes move to Trump bolstering his lead. However, uh, in New Hampshire, independents are allowed to vote in the Republican primary. And uh, there is no Democratic primary to distract them. Now, how many independents will actually be motivated to cross over into the Republican primary to vote for a Nikki Haley? Well, that remains to be seen. Uh, it's really all about who is second and who is third to see how this race will unfold. Donald Trump, 
according to a great piece in the Wall Street Journal, has meticulously built uh, a turnout operation in Iowa second to none. Right now, I'm told that Trump and his supporters have identified as many as 90,000 Iowa Republicans who say they will vote for Donald Trump in the caucuses. Remember, uh, we're looking at a turnout of somewhere between 150 and 185,000 people. That should be more than sufficient to win. But Trump is taking no choices, chances. He's going back into Iowa for three more campaign stops between now and the caucuses. But we also know that Ron DeSantis has basically folded his tent in New Hampshire uh, and in South Carolina uh, and in Nevada and put all of his chips uh, into Iowa. It's make or break for the Florida governor. Nikki Haley, on the other hand, well, based on what I know, she has no turnout mechanism, no organization in Iowa. She's depending solely on advertising, broadcast television, cable television, digital advertising, uh, and that has traditionally not worked very well. This is all going to happen uh, very quickly. Uh, in my view, uh, you're going to have a, a result here uh, which either has Trump finishing off Nikki Haley in her home state of South Carolina, which is third in the lineup, uh, or uh, you're going to have uh, a, a quick death uh, runoff in which DeSantis comes in second but so far behind the president that he lacks uh, the resources to finish the race or to compete in the next several states. We've all seen the headlines, particularly big story in the New York Times, about the implosion of the DeSantis campaign. Again, as I said earlier, expectations. His expectations were very high. People forget that there was a time in this race uh, in which he was actually leading President Donald Trump. Today, uh, if the Florida primary were held, the state where both men live, and where win or lose in Iowa, Ron DeSantis is locked on the ballot, he'd lose, he, DeSantis, would lose by 40 points. So uh, it's all very exciting. I'm a political junkie, and therefore I can't stop thinking about it or talking about it. So buckle your seatbelt. We're going to be talking more about this. We're going to be talking about the invasion of our southern border. We're going to be talking about the efforts by the Democrat media cabal to take down Donald Trump through the courts. It'll all be here on this special New Year's Eve edition of The Roger Stone Show. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone. 
Welcome back. This is the special New Year's Eve edition of the Roger Stone Show. You'll be able to check out my 15th annual international best and worst dressed list, New Year's Day at StoneZone.com. It's absolutely free. Uh, I've given you a little sneak preview of some of them who made this year's list. But now we turn to our meat and potatoes. That's politics. Uh, and joining me is a criminal defense attorney, uh, David Schoen, who very ably represented President Donald Trump uh, in one of his impeachment trials. Uh, to my mind, David Schoen may be the most brilliant legal mind in the country. Uh, sorry, Professor Dershowitz, but that's just the way I see it. Uh, and I am uh, very honored to have him with us today. David Schoen, welcome to The Roger Stone Show. Thank you. It's a great honor for me, but uh, I'm not going to say any maybes when it comes to you. You're the single most politically savvy uh, person in that field or in any field, I suppose, uh, in the country today and have been for decades. Well, we have a mutual admiration society going here, but we got a lot of important questions to get to. Uh, let's start with the, the news uh, late this week. Uh, you had several things happen. First of all, uh, the Colorado Supreme Court uh, moved to uh, or ruled that Trump should be removed from the ballot, but then they stayed their ruling pending either uh, uh, the U U.S. Supreme Court taking up uh, an appeal by President Trump or reaffirming the Colorado Supreme Court's decision. Uh, you had uh, the Michigan State Supreme Court turn down efforts to remove Trump from the ballot. Uh, then you had a new motion to uh, in Maine to uh, move, remove Trump from the ballot. That means there are efforts underway in Alaska, Nevada, New Jersey, New York, New Mexico, Oregon, South Carolina, Texas, Vermont, Virginia, West Virginia, Wisconsin, Wyoming, uh, and you have appeals now going on in Arizona and Michigan. Uh, the argument is somehow that the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, specifically Ar uh, Article 3, prohibits Trump uh, from being on the ballot. You have argued, saw you on CNN the other day, you have argued very articulately that that is not the case. David, break this down for us. That's uh, a very good introduction. Uh, yeah, you're right. I want to just give you one aside, though, to show how ridiculous this gets. In the challenge in Maine, one of the three challengers made an ar a different argument. He argued that under the 22nd Amendment, since President Trump claims he won the last election, he should be barred from this ballot because the 22nd Amendment prohibits someone from holding office twice. That's just how silly this thing has gotten. But now back to your and he said, by the way, if President Trump would admit he lost the election, he would withdraw his challenge. These people are playing games with the First and Fourteenth Amendment rights of every voter in this country and every person who would stand for president of the United States. There's no place for this. But all right, your question is break it down. The the real challenge they're bringing Fourteenth Amendment Section Three says that if someone's committed in, been involved with insurrection or rebellion, 
can't stand for public office. There are many reasons Colorado court got it wrong. Um, the most, to me, the most significant and important and fundamental one is the textual one. It doesn't apply to the president of the United States. If you look at the legislative history, they considered there, uh, one version had the term president in there as one of the people who would be disqualified if he or she was involved in insurrection rebellion. They took that out. They specifically mentioned other positions. Um, so uh, that, that's, you know, that's a pretty good indication right there. Um, second, a second textual reason would be, and this goes back to a case called Griffin's case in 1869. Supreme Court Justice Salmon Chase sat on the case, and he said, this is not self-executing, meaning there would have to be federal legislation in order to enact that. Well, sure enough, Section 5 of the 14th Amendment says that Congress shall have power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. Now, you can make an argument that Congress sort of acted when they uh, instituted the insurrection statute, criminal insurrection, 18 U.S.C. 2383, which also has as a remedy if someone's convicted criminally of insurrection that that person can't hold public office. But they never charged President Trump with insurrection. So they're trying to backdoor here. And what we know for sure is this group of people who's been after President Trump since he took office, Norm Eisen and his fellow travelers, Andrew Weissman and others, drafted model prosecution memos for the Justice Department in each of the federal cases against uh, President Trump. One thing they suggested was bringing a criminal charge of insurrection. The prosecutor knew they could not make out a charge of insurrection, knew the First Amendment challenges that would be raised, and so they didn't bring it. So not only has President Trump ever been convicted of insurrection, he's never been charged with it, and intentionally so. So to now have some Secretary of State or some state court find that he committed insurrection, not only should have been charged, but he's guilty of it, and therefore he can't stand for president, and the 75 million people or whoever voted last time for him, and maybe more this time, can't exercise their vote for him, would be an absolute outrageous uh, breach of the Constitution and the guarantee between that Constitution and Americans. Yeah, it was interesting to me that the Colorado uh, lower court where you had a, a very, very partisan judge. Uh, uh, and she basically said the president was guilty of insurrection, despite the fact that he has not been convicted of insurrection in any federal court. Uh, but she uh, declined the case uh, based on the fact that Trump was not technically an officer of the United States. And the Supreme Court has previously held uh, in their analysis, that an officer of the United States uh, it does not include the president or the vice president. So this argument is flawed two ways. One, the lack of any conviction for insurrection, never mind even being charged with it. But secondarily, this statute was designed to keep Confederates after the Civil War from holding federal office, and it specifically does not include the president of the United States. Uh, but it, it's very clever uh, in that the, the plaintiffs in most of these cases are Republican or independent voters in these states uh, that they have recruited essentially to be straw men, to be front people for this organization, Crew, uh, which the claim, they claim has to do with ethics, but which is in fact just a George Soros 
funded uh, lawfare operation uh, helmed by Norm Eisen. Uh, you can tell us a little bit about Norm Eisen, can't you, David? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he served as, ironically, he served as President Obama's ethics counsel, and then he made him an ambassador, I think, to the Czech Republic. He has made a career out of going after Donald Trump. He wrote up a 169 or so page treatise with another fellow, uh, basically saying early on in the Trump administration why Trump should be impeached, convicted of a crime, sentenced to prison, and so on. He then uh, had crew bring a lawsuit against President Trump under the so-called emoluments clause, saying that he had benefited personally through his hotels and so on, uh, based on his office. Um, he brought a number, a series of other cases. At the same time, he took a position as investigative counsel for a congressional committee looking into these things so that any discovery and investigation they conducted certainly would help him in his group's uh, civil cases and all that. He then has written these prosecution model memos and helped others write them. Um, it's really extraordinary for a person to make such, have such an obsession like Andrew Weissman um, with this. And so now we know that you know, Norm Eisen is behind crew and some, many of these challenges around the country, and I think he wears it in his group, at least, as a badge of honor. I think it, 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 what it reflects is every way possible to deny the American voters their right to vote. And, uh, you know, Jerry Nadler said it best, I believe, in 2019, when he said, we can't trust the voters. About as undemocratic a comment as I could ever imagine a member of Congress making, um, slap in the face to every American out there. I cherish the right to vote, and I think every other American does. Um, and so Norm Eisen and this group of folks, like a Jerry Nadler, try to find every way possible to not trust the voters and to deny President Trump a position on the ballot so that votes can't be cast for him. And, you know, frankly, I think, I think so. it's heartening, I think, as an American to see that the polls just soar up for President Trump when these kinds of things happen. Because at the end of the day, however one felt about President Trump, positive, negative, neutral before, fair-minded Americans see these as extrajudicial, extra-ballot, so, so to speak, attacks on the institution of the presidency, specifically on President Trump in this case, and they don't want that. They want to be able to have a straight-up, fair election, cast their vote for whoever that's going to be. So uh, the case in Colorado, uh, where the state Supreme Court has has essentially decided to remove Trump from the ballot, but then stayed their own decision pending Supreme Court action. If the court takes Trump's appeal and they rule for Trump, would that have the effect of ending all of these efforts in all of these other states I just listed to remove Trump yeah, from the ballot? I, I, I think so. You know, it's a great question because it depends on how it does it. We have a real time constraint here. Ballots have to be printed, and ballots under the UACAVA, which is the Absentee Ballot Uniform Services Act, um, they, those ballots have to go out to overseas folks, military and otherwise, 45 days ahead of the, of the federal election. Um, so they really were running up against a time constraint. I could imagine that the Supreme Court could take the Colorado uh, decision and issue a summary order reversing it. Um, and that wouldn't quite have, you know, the kind of presidential effect one might like it to have on all the other states. It would be moronic for any other state to continue to try to keep them off the ballot, because that would have spoken loudly and clearly. But that may be 
a consequence of what happens here, given the time constraint. Um, that's also why it's a good thing that Colorado stayed its order and that President Trump remains on the ballot, as he does in Maine, because if it were the other way, then I would really worry about the time constraints leading the court to not get involved in it, and he would stay off the ballot. I can't imagine a world in which that would happen, um, that they're going to make such a monumental decision sort of just by summary order, in that case, the other direction. But here they could, once he's on the ballot, and they believe that to be the right result, they could do it by summary order, not take oral argument and all of that. We're just going to have to see how that plays out. It's an important question also because you've got decisions in the Michigan case that was just decided, similar to the Minnesota case. It's kind of a preliminary decision. What they said was, well, we're not going to get them off of the ballot for the primaries because there is a whole body of jurisprudence that says a political party who earned the right to have primaries and all that, meaning a major political party within that state, has the right to determine who its candidates will be on a primary ballot, even if that includes an, inelig in, an ineligible candidate. And so they said this can be re raised again in the general election. Someone could move to get them off the ballot then. But I think if the Colorado decision is reversed, that's going to send the message to everybody that you don't use the 14th Amendment, Section 3, to get a president off. It may say that. It may say that. Plus, there's been no proof of insurrection. We don't do it by single-judge fiat here. Um, partisan political decision. Um, and it may be a combination of those things, maybe one or the other. But as long as they send a strong message that the Colorado decision is reversed, that's the key here. One last thing I want to bring to, my, uh, to the listeners is, you know, this judge, uh, not a judge, the secretary of state in Maine, Maine has a unique system. Rather than presenting this to a court, it's presented as a matter of first course to the secretary of state. Secretary of state is a Democrat in that state, has issued one after another statement convicting, in her mind, President Trump of insurrection, very negative things. She made now a finding under 14th Amendment, Section 3, a legal issue over which scholars for decades have differed. She made a decision that it applies and that it bars him from being on the ballot. I want every listener out there to know she has not a lawyer. She has zero legal training. And she made this kind of decision with this kind of monumental effect. It's really unbelievable to me. Fortunately, in Maine, they have the right to appeal it to the Maine Superior Court, but then it's got to work its way up. It's a complicated process. That's why I wondered whether the Colorado decision might short-circuit uh, all of yes. this. Uh, so uh, turning now to the D.C. case uh, brought by Special Counsel Jack Smith, uh, the lower court judge, or I should say the trial court judge, Judge Chutkin, uh, denied uh, a motion uh, by President Trump in which he claimed that under the Constitution he had legal immunity for acts performed while he was president. Uh, he then has the option uh, and was moving towards taking that to the Circuit Court of Appeals in D.C., which is, uh, I've been to that court, that's a, an unfavorable jurisdiction for the president. Uh, but then Special Counsel Smith tried to leapfrog the Circuit Court of Appeals and go directly to the U.S. Supreme Court, thus, I think, demonstrating that his timeline here is political, not legal. He's desperate to have a trial as soon as possible. He wants to have it March 4th, the day before the March 5th Tuesday 
Super Tuesday primary, in which the single largest catch of delegates for the presidential nomination uh, will be uh, will be elected, or should say, selected. Uh, and the the court, the Supreme Court, declined to hear that uh, and kicked it back to the Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, David, what's going on here? Yeah, well, it's also a, a real mess, and you're 100% right. Uh, it had to have been only political to try to uh, short-circuit the process and circumvent the Court of Appeals. The court, the Supreme Court was absolutely right to reject it. The, um, the special counsel, so-called, uh, tried to claim that this is similar to uh, the Nixon case that in which the court allowed them to circumvent it, but that case simply involved a subpoena, a timely issue about a subpoena in the case, and it considered that. This is the fundamental, what we have here is the fundamental question in the case. Um, so they were right to reject that. Um, it, he does simply insist on having the trial when it is, and now it shouldn't be. There's another reason this, sh- this trial really should not go forward in March in any event, and that's because the United States Supreme Court has agreed to take up the question of what... Uh, the obstruction statute means. That's one of the, uh, President Trump is charged with the obstruction statute also. The Supreme Court has granted certiorari to construe that statute. There's no possible way in fairness that President Trump's trial should go forward until that issue is decided also. But the immunity issue is also, uh, you know, a key question. Um, there, there, there was no good reason to try to, uh, to, try to uh, circumvent it. Um, I think that... Uh, I, I, by the way, you know, the, the reason that Smith proffered as to why it had to hear the case now is that he wasn't sure that the case, the court could fully consider the issue and decide it within this term of court. There's no reason for it to have to be decided with this, within this term of court. You're talking about a major constitutional issue. Nobody's going anyplace. The court should take its time and uh, hear a full briefing and full argument after it's already been parsed through by the Court of Appeals. Um, It's just it's really abhorrent. But at each step of the way, Smith and the others show that these prosecutions were just brought to try to impact the election. It's inappropriate. It's an abuse of the judicial process. I should point out to our listeners that uh, David Schoen is not a Republican. Uh, I don't think he's a conservative. Uh, He has really made his name in civil rights cases across the South. Uh, and uh, to my mind, uh, he has reached his conclusions based on on what has transpired rather than any partisan fervor on his part. This is one of the reasons why I have so much respect for you, David. Uh, David Schoen is, uh, a, uh, has a master's of law degree from Columbia University Law School. He has a juris doctor cum laude uh, from the uh, Boston College Law School. Uh, and uh, uh, like me, he attended George Washington University for his uh, undergrad. Uh, David, the, the, the question uh, of obstruction uh, conceivably has an impact on the cases of many of the defendants uh, charged in connection with January 6th, no? That's right. No, it, it absolutely does. And what does it mean to obstruct a proceeding? What's an official proceeding? Uh, and so on. It's all, all of these issues are going to have to be sorted out. Um, uh, you know, I, I worry that the court has in its mind the impact of its decision, but there have been other situations we've faced 
the court, in which the impact could be tremendous um, in, sent- in terms of sentencing or reversing a number of convictions. And hopefully the court just, you know, does the right thing and construes it consistent with the language that's being used. Um, and so that that's one question. But the immunity issue is also, as you've said, you know, a very important issue. And tre- President Trump has said at all times that in the, any actions he took with respect to this election, he believed he was required to take under Article 2, Section 1, Clause 8, which requires him to faithfully execute the office of president, make sure the laws are followed, and defend the Constitution. Um, Article 2, Section 3 also, you know, he takes an oath of office, and uh, he was fulfilling those things. And so some of these people, you know, present the issue as, well, you know, you don't have immunity for life, you're out of office, or they're, they're really misconstruing the issue. He took those actions, whatever actions he took, he took when he was president of the United States. They want to say, well, but he was also a candidate. Therefore, he took it in his capacity as candidate for the next presidency, um, next term of office. Uh, you know, we don't want courts being in the position of trying to read minds and see which hat someone was wearing at which time. It would be very different if there were so-called crime of another nature. This is directly related to his obligations as president of the United States, one of the most fundamental obligations. People don't like that he didn't, uh, that he thought there was fraud involved in the uh, result, but that's what he was told by uh, people who he consulted with at the time. He firmly believed it. And in terms of, you know, this idea that he was telling Vice President Pence to do something he couldn't do, I will tell you that uh, foremost experts on uh, the Electoral Count Act and election law in general, including a professor from Ohio State, has said nobody really knows what the vice president's role is under the Electoral Count Act. So, you know, these are not. It was a. It's a terrible thing to be using the criminal process to this for this. As much as enemies of President Trump might like it, might like to try to make him squirm, or might like to try to use it to keep him off the ballot. But uh, it's just. It, it's terrible that we do this because. You can be sure it's going to be misused against someone else in the future. And by the way, you're, you're right that I don't associate with any political group. I've represented the Democratic Party. I've represented a socialist candidate for president. I've represented the Libertarian Party, independent candidates. But one group I will disassociate myself with forever is what I call the hate squad, a group of bigots um, uh, who are anti-American uh, members of Congress, starting with Tlaib, Omar, Bowman, and AOC and the rest of the crowd. That uh, I would never have any political allegiance to. That I can assure you. Uh, for those who don't know, David Schoen has just returned from Israel. Uh, he is a, a stout uh, advocate uh, for the state of Israel. Uh, he's a, a devout Jew, uh, and he is as outraged as I am uh, at this wave uh, of mindless anti-Semitism uh, that we see. Uh, manifesting itself, particularly in New York City. The idea that the tree lighting ceremony at Rockefeller Center would be destroyed, one of the one of the greatest Christmas traditions uh, in the New York area would be destroyed by pro-Palestinian demonstrators. To me, I'm sorry, this, this just boggles my mind. We're going to talk about this a little later in the show with Democratic political strategist Hank Sheinkoff, if you're just tuning in, folks, this is the Roger Stone Show at 77 WABC, and we're talking to criminal defense lawyer David Schoen. Uh, David, uh, former Attorney General uh, Ed Meese, 
uh, and two other uh, legal authorities filed an amicus brief uh, with the, uh, the court last week uh, in which they challenge the legitimacy uh, and the legality of uh, Jack Smith's appointment uh, as special counsel. Now, if there had to, were to be a court finding in that regard, as I understand it, as a non-lawyer, it would negate all of the indictments uh, brought by Mr. Smith. Uh, talk to us uh, about uh, what is the case that Mies uh, and these two college professors are making? Right. Well, it's a very important and very interesting constitutional argument. The two professors, Gary Lawson and Stephen Calabrese, are well-respected uh, conservative uh, scholars, not fans of President Donald Trump. They originally raised this issue in a law review article in the Boston University School of Law. Uh, Lawson is at BU, Calabrese is at Northwestern. They raised it in 2019 in an article called Why Robert Mueller's Appointment as Special Counsel Was Unlawful. And their point is that the appointment process uh, for a person to have this kind of authority is a different process under the Constitution, requires the president's involvement. And so it's unconstitutional to give the kind of authority to a Mueller or to a Smith that's been given to him, given the subject of the investigation and the potential consequences um, of the investigation. So now Ed Meese joined that argument and filed this uh amicus brief. Um, I will say this. The argument was rejected in a D.C. Circuit Court opinion in 2019, but it doesn't really uh, analyze it carefully at all. And um, and it hasn't been raised, you know, now as to Mr. Smith. It was raised in connection with the Mueller uh, issue back then. I have to say that I, I'm hopeful uh, for the legal issue to come to life, really that President Trump's lawyers raised the issue in their motions to dismiss, uh, and this is not just being raised by way of amicus brief, but um, uh, Calabrese and Lawson and Edmise, of course, are not people to just be ignored. It's certainly not a frivolous argument by any means. And Calabrese um, actually has uh, an interesting guy. He originally took the position that 14th Amendment Section 3 could apply to a president of the United States. He then wrote a letter uh, of apology, in a sense, in the Wall Street Journal, in which he said he's been convinced otherwise he was wrong and that it does not apply. But he's also made no bones about the idea that he doesn't support President Trump in any way. He's looking at this as a legal issue. Um, and uh, and I, I think his reasoning seems quite sound, frankly. Um, we'll see where that issue goes. I think the court's going to have to address it. It's true they could sidestep it and come up with a different rationale for uh, for their decision, whatever that decision is going to be. But um, it's a serious it's a serious argument. Well, I would hope that uh, President Trump's lawyers would raise this issue in the Eleventh Circuit in Florida, since it has already been adjudicated pertaining to Robert Mueller unsuccessfully in D.C. As I understand it, it would not preclude Trump from raising the issue. Uh, uh, in the in the in the documents case, uh, in any event, I'll, I'll tell you that's a, it's a very important point you raised. I, I will tell you this without violating any kind of privilege. Uh, probably the first memo that I wrote on this to the subject of that prosecution, 
raised this issue, that it must be raised in that case, whether it succeeded in D.C. or not. It had to be raised and preserved. So I'm hoping that it was. That was in the Florida case and, of course, in the D.C. case. All right. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank David Schoen, criminal defense lawyer, represented President Donald Trump most ably in his impeachment trial. Uh, Happy New Year to you, David. And many thanks for joining The Roger Stone Show. It's The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Welcome back. This is The Roger Stone Show at 77 WABC Radio. Now would be an excellent time for you to go to the App Store uh, and to download the 77 WABC Radio app to your cell phone so you don't miss any of the amazing talk or entertainment that we have here at 77 WABC. Uh, and if you don't have time to tune into any particular show, you can always go back through the app and listen after the fact. So uh, take an opportunity to download that to your cell phone so you don't miss any of the great programming we have here. I'm talking about uh, John Katzmatidis uh, and, uh, and uh, Rita Cosby, their great show, Larry Kudlow on Saturdays, my good friend Curtis Sliwa, uh, the late night rantings of uh, Frank Marano, uh, the uh, my old friend Dominic Carter. There is so much great programming here at 77 WBC. You don't want to miss all of it. Uh, folks, uh, reading from last week's New York Post, uh, which says... Uh, Nearly 250,000 migrants crossed the southern border uh, in November of this year alone, a new high for the month and the third highest total in history. Uh, There have been more than 2 million migrant encounters at the U.S. southern border in 2022 and 2023 fiscal years, with U.S. officials warning that this influx shows no signs of slowing. Uh, Again, reading from the New York Post, uh, the U.S. and Mexico released a joint statement on the migration crisis last Thursday that was heavy on platitudes and support for asylum seekers, Uh, but mentioned no particular action to stop the record-breaking wave of illegal immigration uh, and even teased the prospect of amnesty for those who are already in the country illegally. Joining us now to talk about this is Christy Hutcherson. Christy Christy Hutcherson is a fighter for truth, life, and the voiceless, Uh, She is the founder and spokeswoman for Women Fighting for America. Uh, She has extensive experience in the private defense industry, where for over 20 years she was positioned uh, and is recognized as a geopolitical security expert and is a much sought-after speaker uh, with broad connections uh, in the freedom movement. Christy Hutcherson has been a frontline fighter uh, on the issue of illegal immigration. She's one of the few Americans who has actually traveled the entire 2,000 miles of our southern border uh, and hundreds of miles of our forgotten northern border 
uh, in her quest to understand and fight the scourge of illegal immigration. Christy Hutcherson has led over 100 border missions, uh, establishing her organization, Women Fighting for America, as a clear leader in exposing and fighting uh, the corruption and danger uh, on our borders. Uh, Christy is a personal friend of mine, someone who I admire enormously for her courage and her persistence. Uh, she has seen firsthand the devastation of illegal immigration, child and human trafficking, organ trafficking, the massive amounts of lethal drugs entering our country, and the atrocities being committed by transnational criminal organizations on our border. Christy Hutcherson, welcome to The Roger Stone Show. Thank you so much, Roger, for having me today. This is such an important topic. So I gave a, a little bit uh, about your background. Uh, I Believe me, I pray for your safety on a regular basis. You have really uh, been out there on this issue. Uh, talk to us about your firsthand experiences uh, on our southern border. Yeah, Roger, you know, um, my my personal experience on the border started two weeks into the Biden administration. And so this was a premeditated uh, open border policy prior to him taking office in January. Uh, we have the proof to, to prove that through contracts with NGOs, non-governmental organizations, and already putting in place where they were going to take and house UACs, unaccompanied children, as well as single young adult males and family units. And so I started looking at the border, like I said, two weeks into the Biden administration, I flew down with a very small elite team with very special skill sets, and we went into Tijuana, Mexico. And we started driving the full southern border and looking at what was happening on both sides, both in Mexico and also in the United States with this open border policy. And most people think, well, we really didn't get into this until about six months into the Biden administration. Well, that is not true. Um, if you're in the intel world and you've delved into what the, what the plans were way ahead of time, you started seeing this collaboration um, with uh, both Central South America as well as Mexico and putting in place government, um, non-governmental agencies, by the way, who are funded by taxpayer dollars. And so, uh, you know, we started looking, I've been into stash houses, I've been into, um, you know, I've dealt with the cartel. We've, we've even rescued children from the cartel. And I can tell America right now, we are in serious trouble because we've had unchecked borders, both Southern, Northern, Western and East Coast borders, literally since the Biden administration took office. And I really want to delve into a couple things today, further on, what nobody else is talking about, and we better start talking about. So do you think the Biden administration is allowing the borders to remain open while telling the American people reportedly that our borders are secure because it is, uh, it is really their strategy, their policy, or are they naive? Uh, I, this is very hard to understand. I mean, uh, I think it was Carrie Lake who told me that there's 318 gates on the border between Mexico and Arizona that are welded open, uh, allegedly because there's some rare species of antelope that needs to be able to come and go. That doesn't sound like a secure border to me. 
Well, our borders are nothing but not secure. Um, This is a necessary piece of the puzzle. Yes, this is purposeful. Uh, The Biden administration is not um, naive. They are not ignorant and they are not stupid. They've been, Biden's been in office, as you know, Roger, for well over 50 years. They know exactly from a national security perspective exactly what's going on. They get briefed all the time by the CIA, the FBI, and the NSA and other agencies. Um, even we have a clandestine agency that I won't get into today that briefs the administration and every president about the risk, what's going on on a global scale. So this is a necessary piece of the of the Biden administration's puzzle. It's the ultimate destruction of America using what they're trying to manipulate the public opinion into legal methods. These are not legal methods, by the way. We're breaking our laws every day. We have um, an immigration policy already in place. Most of the people that they're even claiming are seeking asylum, they don't even qualify for asylum. Asylum seekers have to be fleeing uh persecution and direct threat to themselves and their family, 99% of these people do not even qualify under that. And you're not allowed to country shop, by the way. When you're seeking asylum, if you're in that desperate need and threat for your life and your family's life, you go to the closest uh, country that is safe. Well, America is not that country. These people are flying in to Mexico City, coming up to the Darien Gap. I mean, we're just seeing this. They're manipulating the public. You know, and it's propaganda uh, bolstered by the fake media and the complicit media who want this global uh, uh, globalization of of the world. Um, We have broadened our acceptance to allow them to come in under the cover of asylum and persecution. And we have to understand that this is Obama's brown army back 12 to 15 years ago that he stated in one of his speeches. Uh, the real numbers are coming through a little hard to understand. Can you explain the difference between a migrant encounter, uh, what they call a gotaway, and an unknown? Yeah, so a migrant encounter are those people that they're catching all along the borders, whether it's the, you know, we have four borders in America, west, east, north, and south. And so those are those, are those migrant encounters. Gotaways are those that they trigger camera systems, Somewhere on the border, we have systems set up where there's something that triggered where we caught them on camera. And those people who were in the realm of the camera lens, um, we, we knew that they came across. We don't know where they're from, who they are, or where they are in the United States because they got away. Um, those are very dangerous individuals, by the way. And the last one are uh, those that we don't even know that they were. We know that when a camera system is triggered, there's more than what's caught in that camera lens. Um, we're not seeing the rest of the group that's coming in. So the numbers, by the way, Roger, that they're telling the American people, and believe me, I have spent countless hours and days and months and years working with U.S. Marshals, Border Patrol agents, and sheriffs, and then also looking at the data, private sector data and public sector data. Um, the numbers in reality are well over 20 million who have entered the United States under the Biden administration. The public number you usually see is 10, so it's uh, uh, that's uh, uh, a startling uh, revelation. Uh, do you think uh, that Texas Governor Abbott's doing the right thing by shipping illegals to sanctuary cities like, say, oh, I don't know, New York City? Absolutely not. 
Governor Abbott, he just signed, um, I believe it's SB4, um, also under the Texas Constitution, um, under national security implications, with the, which is a direct threat to the state of Texas and its uh, constituents. Abbott can supersede the federal government, in my opinion, when these people breach that federal um, gap, that space the federal government owns. Um, they can actually, and I've worked with sheriffs, and they said this is treason, and that they can actually take these individuals and they can send them back to the country of origin or detain them until they can vet them properly and make sure that they're coming through the right procedures. So he is aiding and abetting human trafficking, first and foremost, every time he puts anybody on a bus train, fill in the blank. Two, again, these people aren't properly being vetted. And he's taking individuals and bringing them into the United States. And we don't know what they're going to do. We already know that people, uh, legal American citizens, have been murdered and killed by these illegals. So this is a huge bloodbath, I believe, on Governor Abbott's um, hands. And it's a political Band-Aid. And he's not doing nowhere near enough. Uh, you made reference to the Darien Gap. Uh, no, folks, we're not talking about Darien, Connecticut. Uh, explain to people where that is and what's going on there. Yeah, so the Darien Gap is this little section. It's where um, it's, it's near the Panama, it's near Panama, Panama Canal area. It's uh, near where Venezuela and Colombia, and you come up through Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Honduras, and you make your trek up through Central America into Mexico and into the United States. The problem with this particular region is, first and foremost, um, not only are all of these individuals coming up through the Daring Gap, which is a huge known area for terrorist activity, cartel activity, um, trafficking, drug trafficking. It's very, very dangerous. Um, but in addition to this, what nobody else is talking about, Venezuela is very close to the Darien Gap. And Venezuela is a country that just signed a 20-year extension agreement with none other than Iran. They also have agreements with China as well. Iran flies into Caracas, Venezuela, two flights a day on a U.S.-sanctioned airline from Tehran into Caracas, Venezuela. And Venezuela, way back since 2012, we've known this, and our own central intelligence agencies have reported on this, that the Venezuelan government gives Iranian terrorists, Hezbollah, Hamas, Iran's Revolutionary Guard, Qud Forces, legal documentation and passports saying that they are not from Tehran or from Iran or from Syria, etc., but they are actual Venezuelan citizens. And they give and produce these legal documents. And so it's not a coincidence that you're seeing this huge uptick of Venezuelans coming over. I would venture to say, Roger, intel that we have, most of those individuals are terrorists from terrorists who are coming in legitimately and we need to discuss this on a very large scale. And Congress needs to act. This is a direct threat to the United States of America and our sovereignty. Uh, I have seen reports that there's a very substantial of, uh, number of military age uh, Chinese nationals coming into the country uh, at the dairy or coming into the hemisphere uh, in the Darien Gap. There are Chinese, Russian, and uh, 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 all of them, all of the above are coming in. We, we do not have a closed border. We do not have a secure border. This is an invasion, make no mistake. And I, and I want to talk to you a little bit about what happened on October 7th, because unfortunately, America is going to have uh, terrorist attacks, multiple, 
uh, we already know that Christopher Ray has already testified just before Christmas. Um, every single red button has been pushed. They are actively right now trying to track down that I know of right now over 50 known terrorists who they know through the chatter and that they've through, heard through the intelligence that they have a direct threat right now to carry out jihadi attacks on U.S. soil. We already know that there's terrorist cells here. I've already identified three of them right now um, in Central America. Kansas is one of those, by the way. There's also an organization, Roger, called the External Security Organization, or the ESO, um, or they're best known as in the, in the world as the Unit 910. They are referred to as the Islamic Jihad Organization, ran by Hezbollah. It is their clandestine black ops branch and intelligence wing. These guys are very dangerous. They compartmentalized units. They're responsible already for overseas terrorist operations, mainly against Western targets in Israel. The unit acts on long-range strategic arm of Hezbollah and Iran. They are here in the United States right now. The U.S. State Department, Roger, knows more than 60 other countries and organizations, including the EU and the Arab League and the Gulf Corporation Council, have designated this group as foreign terrorists. And we know that they are operating currently right now in the United States of America. If I were every American citizen right now, I would be outraged that our Congress and the Republican Party, who, who is running Congress right now, is not acting on national security interests for the American people. Uh, folks, if you're just tuning in, this is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC Radio, and we're talking to Christy Hutcherson, uh, who is the founder and spokeswoman for Women Fighting for America, but more importantly, is widely recognized uh, as one of the foremost experts on border security. Uh, she's actually been there, one of the few people to travel the entire 2,000 miles of our southern border. Uh, I don't want to get too colorful here, Christy, but, but tell us tell us what you've seen firsthand. The, the tunneling, uh, the, the child trafficking, uh, it's, it really boggles the mind. Yeah, you know, we've, me and my team have been up and intercepted what we call um, the Mexican Highway. It's a rough terrain area. It's very difficult to get up to. It takes us sometimes several hours to hike up there. Um, these are staging grounds where these the cartels, the coyotes, bring either women, children, who have already been earmarked, by the way, to be sold into the United States of America. And we've, uh, we've confiscated these phones, and we've downloaded numbers, and they light up everywhere from Chicago to New York to Minnesota, you name it, um, the buyers. Uh, this is where they take and they tie women and children down uh, to chains and shackles, and they violently gang rape them. They, they throw their bras and their panties into the trees as a trophy. It's disgusting. Um, you know, the, the fentanyl, the, uh, the drugs that are pouring over our borders at an unprecedented amount. By the way, China is complicit, and Biden... Um, supposedly met with Xi Jinping, and they were they put a Band-Aid on this fentanyl. Uh, no one's holding them accountable for killing uh, hundreds of thousands of American lives over the course of the last two years just in the fentanyl. The weapons that are coming in right now and flooding into the United States. Um, back in January of last year, uh, me and my team were doing a ride-along with uh, Chief Jessup at the time in Arizona sector. We 
broke the story of a major tunnel. Tunnels are not new. This particular tunnel, Roger, was a major concern. It had fortified wall ceilings, 25 feet under the ground, four and a half football fields long, went under a major thoroughfare where the Border Patrol and gates are. It had ventilation systems, a rail system, fiber optics in this. The only way that the cartels are learning how to have this type of tunneling uh, technology and sophistication is from Hamas. They are uh, learning directly from Hamas how to build these strategic tunnels where they're smuggling in, we believe, not only weapons, but possible dirty bombs and, and unfortunately very serious stuff. When we were there that day, Biden's administration had the three-letter agencies there, and we were told to stay. I, by the way, you can go on our, uh, you can follow me on all of our social media. I went live and showed this tunnel. We also know that Hezbollah, Hamas, and Iran's Revolutionary Guard are embedded with the cartel in Mexico and in Colombia. They're having training camps currently right now just over the border in Texas, um, 35 miles um, on, in some areas. We have a growing president of military men who are coming in. They have cell phones. They're given orders. They're told where to go. They're given pieces of paper, Roger, saying go to Pittsburgh, even though they don't even know why they're going there because they're, they're loads down on the totem pole and they're going to get orders to act out, unfortunately, very serious stuff against the United States of America. Nobody is talking about this. What amazes me is that when the illegals get here, uh, they're given a, a cell phone, if they'd already have one. Uh, not clear how they're paying their bills, by the way. Uh, they're given, uh, you know, a preloaded credit card. Uh, they're given lodging, either in a migrant shelter or a hotel that's been taken over for a migrant shelter. Uh, the In New York City, the Roosevelt Hotel, landmarked, once uh, the elite headquarters of New York Governor Tom Dewey, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, uh, Mayor John V. Lindsay, uh, is now a crime scene. Uh, it's now a migrant shelter uh, where the NYPD has to respond to numerous uh, uh, criminal offenses in the lobbies and the hallways virtually every single day. Uh, it's it's really quite extraordinary, particularly when you take into consideration that public figures like uh, Mayor Adams are telling us, look, we're, we're bursting at the seams here financially. We're going to have to cut law enforcement. We're going to have to cut sanitation. We're going to have to cut education. Uh, we're going to ha have to cut uh, social services. We're going to have to cut back in our hospitals uh, because we have an, a legal obligation to pay for these illegals, which, by the way, I, I challenge that uh, that legal assumption. Uh, Christy, I guess here's the tougher question. By the way, folks, this is the Roger Stone Show. Once again, we're we're talking to Christy Hutcherson with Women Fighting for America uh, about the crisis at our southern border uh, and the uh, overall immigration or a migrant crisis in America. Christy, what's the solution? Well, Roger, me and my team have actively done um, about 16 uh, proof of concepts. Um, we've rode along with Sheriff, Sheriff Radko of Kenny County, Texas. We've done several in the state of Arizona, by the way, at my own personal expense and my team's personal expense. Um, we have 100% uh, detection and apprehension rate when our team is on the ground. We've worked, uh, uh, Sheriff Brad Coe 
is a huge um, advocate. He's seen firsthand what we can do. The Border Patrol, we were featured on Fox over two years ago. Um, you know, we have a public-private partnership that we can go in with local law enforcement. We work underneath their umbrella. We bring in our highly sophisticated systems, which I won't get into over the phone for security reasons, but we have that in our operational ground support. We make a virtual wall since our federal government won't do it. And we are the stand between all of this illegal activity, the drugs, the fentanyl, the terrorists, the, the murders, the rapes, all of those things can be stopped pretty, pretty quickly, by the way. Uh, you have to have the political will to do it. Um, I just briefed um, a senator in the state of Texas and gave him this proposal. And uh, he is it's in his hands. Again, uh, Governor Ducey at the time of Arizona, uh, my, me and my team went in and briefed him. And they rejected it and uh, because they don't want closed borders. It's really that simple, Roger. But we do have the solution. Uh, you know, you work with public-private partnership. You become uh, the secondary force of our, of our law enforcement and our military. And we close down and shut down the border with a virtual wall basically. Uh, and you're, you know what, Roger, you are right about something. What, what we're not, what the news media is not telling America either, there's so much criminal activity going on because of these illegals. The uptick in crime has gone up exponentially in these, especially in these sanctuary cities, the rapes, the murders, they're keeping it really underneath the radar. And the private entities like Catholic Charities, Bethany Christian Services, all of these NGOs, they keep it internal and hush-hush because they don't want this to get out into the secular media. And not only is America at risk from criminal activity going up, but this is also designed to collapse our economy because we cannot sustain this, like you said. We are getting our own systems replaced, whether it's the education system, whether it's the hospital systems, first responders, et cetera, because we're having to pay billions and billions of dollars for all of these illegals who don't, by the way, and I agree with you, Roger, they do not um, have any protections, in my opinion, under the, the laws of the United States of America. They're illegally here. They broke into this our country illegally, and they should be treated as such, illegal and criminals. I think the mayor of Chicago kind of blurted it out yesterday. He basically said that the current situation in his city is unsustainable, uh, that they just don't have the finances or the infrastructure for it. Uh, but then the answer that he gave, which seems to me to be ridiculous, is well, we just need to grant all of these people citizenship. In other words, so they can vote. Looking at this from a strictly political point of view, uh, they say, well, if you believe in the replacement theory, uh, that's racist. Uh, I don't know how you could not understand the political agenda here. Uh, they are flooding the people with illegals. They're giving them all these government benefits. Uh, and uh, it, it changes the face of America, but it also changes the face of the electorate. Christy, we're almost out of time. Tell people uh, where they can go to your website to learn more about women fighting for America and how they can support your efforts. And also tell them where they can find you on social media. Absolutely. Um, you can simply go to our website or search Women Fighting for America, WFFA 
dot W-I-N, that's dot W-I-N, W-F-S-A dot W-I-N. Um, and then you can link to our social media, follow us. We really do need your support um, and your effort to keep this out there in the intel and getting this information. Two important points before we go. Every single time an illegal comes over the border and pays the cartel money to, to for safe passage, they are giving cartels and terrorists money to uh, embolden them to bring down legal American citizens. The other thing I want to talk about is, do you know, Roger, that four states currently right now are allowing illegals to become police officers to arrest legal citizens? They're also giving these illegals driver's license and, and ID, and so that way they can go and get voter ID. So this is already in place. So if you think 2024 is going to be a fair free election, buckle up America, because if we don't close our borders, extract these people out of this country, and if the Republican Party doesn't get a backbone and stand up and start impeaching and, and removing these people from office for high treason, we are going to see America not in the same light come next year. All right. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank Christy Hutcherson, the founder and spokeswoman for Women Fighting for America, for joining us today on The Roger Stone Show. Christy, God bless you and be safe. Thank you, Roger. God bless you and God bless the United States. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell. But he's kept going, and he's smart, and he's strong, and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone. Welcome back. This is Roger Stone with our very special New Year's Eve edition of the Roger Stone Show. Joining us now is Hank Sheinkoff, a veteran Democratic political consultant and strategist, uh, one of the key figures in the uh, upset re-election of President Bill Clinton in 1992, uh, a man who has worked in over 700 campaigns, both nationally and internationally, uh, someone who has an incredible uh win record, uh, but also brings a historical perspective to both American and New York state and city politics. Uh, Hank and I are in different parties, but there is no one whose political judgment I respect more in America today than Hank Shankoff. Hank, welcome to the Roger Stone Show. Roger, thank you for having me on. And uh, I'm Greatly embarrassed by that more than generous introduction, but thank you very much for your kind words. Well, your track record speaks for itself. Uh, and uh, the reason I like to interview is because sometimes uh, a lot of Democrats won't come on the show. That's understandable. Uh, those who do always have their partisan hat on. The thing I like about you, Hank, is that you're you're brutally honest. Uh, you, you don't you don't color your analysis with your preferences. Uh, you know, I try to avoid that uh, as much as I can. It's hard uh, because you're a, a loyal Democrat, but uh, nobody really understands the business and the dynamics of what's going on. So let's kind of start with the 2024 uh, presidential campaign. Uh, and let's let's start with the Republicans, uh, not your party, but mine. Uh, how do you see this unfolding? 
Well, um, if I were working for Nikki Haley, I'd be putting a lot of money into New Hampshire. I'd be doing a real field organization on the ground and uh, try to create some kind of an upset. And I would hope that I come within, you know, uh, less than double digits uh, behind Trump in New Hampshire. And that would be a great win for me were I her. And I can see how you do that kind of campaign. It's about organizing, going door to door. I know she started it, but if she hasn't started, she should have started a long time ago. Absent that, Donald Trump's the nominee. Um, and the question then is what happens in November of 2024. And today, based upon the polling data, we see Donald Trump is the president of the United States come January uh, 2025. To, to what extent do the results uh, in the Iowa Republican presidential caucuses, which take place really 15 days from tomorrow, uh, right. impact New Hampshire? I think they have a significant impact for different reasons. I think they balance off New Hampshire. What do I mean by that? Evangelical Christians and others in Iowa will, pro- will likely uh, put their muscle and strength behind Donald Trump, which will give him a boost going into New Hampshire. Now, more uh, moderate, uh, I don't like moderate, but more uh, traditional Republicans in New Hampshire uh, who like to give surprises to people uh, might uh, bring it a lot closer to New Hampshire than people think, regardless of the Iowa outcomes, because the nature of the populations that are voting. Much more conservative, much more centrist, much more middle uh, America, uh, much more evangelical, uh, much more like the, the MAGA Republicans. And New Hampshire probably is, uh, by its very nature, is uh, kind of a different kind of place. I think, Roger. So, uh, if it's if, if it's a wash, if it's a if it's a knockout in, New ha- in Iowa for Trump, it may not be a knockout for Iowa in uh, for excuse me for Trump in New Hampshire. There is the difference. Does Nikki Haley have to beat Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, uh, in in Iowa, to get the kind of forward momentum she needs to score in New Hampshire? It would appear that way. She's got to have she's got to appear that she's got a shot. And the only way she gets a shot is by getting past DeSantis. Absent that, it's hard to see how she uh, has the momentum going into New Hampshire, even if she's organizing and making it work. It's just why? Because the field is so stacked for Donald Trump. Um, He has his numbers are unless pollsters are complete idiots. And sometimes they tend to be, but uh, unless, you know, it's just going all his way. DeSantis thinks that he's the only one that can get even close. Nikki Haley has to make that untrue in a very significant fashion. Yeah, I think DeSantis has made a giant mistake in setting his expectations much too high. Uh, Reading in the New York Post two Saturdays ago, he, he says he will, quote unquote, win Iowa. Well, to me, win is coming in first. Win is is getting more votes than Donald Trump. Yet, and I admit, and I said it earlier in the show, polling within a caucus dynamic is a little different, a little harder. Uh, but it's not so difficult that you can overcome, a, a, you know, a thirty, maybe even a forty point gap. So uh, there, there, I can see if Nikki Haley beats. Ron DeSantis. Now, recognize DeSantis has visited 99 counties. Uh, he's MIA in Florida. Uh, we have an insurance crisis in our state. Uh, we have a utility rate crisis in our state. We have a rising crime crisis in our state. Uh, but our governor is absent. He's in Iowa running for president. 
uh, he's folded his campaign operations in New Hampshire, uh, in uh, South Carolina, uh, and in Nevada. So this is really do or die for him. Uh, I'm sure you read that great long piece in the New York Times by Maggie Haberman uh, and others about the uh, the cluster F of uh, that campaign, which is goes down in history as one of the great disasters of all time. I mean, they've they burned through tens of millions of dollars and don't seem to have much to show for it. Uh, it is my assumption that if DeSantis cannot win Iowa, win, come in first, that his candidacy is probably done. What do you think? I couldn't agree more. I think that his expectation levels are too high. Um, the candidate campaign they've run is disastrous. Uh, if he gets even close, I mean, if someone uh, decides to go after him on the present situation in Florida, particularly on insurance, he's done. Um, you know, he'll be the he'll be the Gavin Newsom of the uh, Republican Party. If Gavin Newsom shows up, uh, should that become become a possibility, California kills him. Um, DeSantis gets within shot. Florida's crazy. Florida's problems right now kill him. So he's run a bad campaign. They, the only people that have benefited here really are the political consultants who've walked away with huge amounts of money. Um, and he's not created a national base of significance. It does not appear that way. His numbers are not great. The lousy campaign. Haley's within shot, although this, uh, this uh, civil war gap could be very serious for her. Um, you know, but we'll see. I, I just don't see how he gets out of this alive, frankly. And I don't see how he gets within shot at Trump. It just doesn't. He just it doesn't smell right. If I were him, I would probably save my money and buy a house. That's what I would do. <laughs> uh, I, I agree with your analysis. I actually think he's he has hurt his brand back here in Florida very very badly. Uh, he can't seek uh, uh, another term. He's termed out. I predicted on this show that his wife Casey DeSantis. Uh, it will probably run for governor. Uh, Hank, you know how this is. Uh, I mean, these people are middle class people, but they get addicted to the perks. They they get they they get addicted to the private planes and the five star resorts and the uh, and the uh, the 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 membership at, at the private clubs, uh, uh, rubbing elbows uh, with millionaires and billionaires. Uh, in nineteen seventy six. When the Reagan campaign, in which I was working, was low on cash, Ronald and Nancy Reagan began flying commercial to campaign stops. Right. This New York Times story last week revealed that the DeSantis campaign has spent more on private jets for the candidate and his wife than they have spent on advertising of all kinds. Right. That, that, that just boggles the mind boggles the mind the political industrial complex knows no bounds i mean we were regardless of what side of the aisle we were on when we started we were warriors we believed in something we went out to do campaigns yeah we got paid we did well uh, compared to everybody else but it wasn't on this scale the amount of money being spent was nowhere near it and you did you had to do things on less cash uh and the the people that we were working for generally including ronald reagan believed in the office uh, did but they, they they did things because they thought there was some value to them whether we liked their their politics or not. What we have instead is a class of people who simply exist to be in office at every level. Uh, the per it's not just the perks; it's the idea. It's it's kind of I got to come up with a phrase for it. It's the 
it's being called governor all day long or madam or uh, council member or congressman. I mean, it's not they're no longer people. And the staffs they have available to them, um, you know, are absurd. The amount of the amount of money being spent by the public to feed um, staff service and attend to these people could certainly do an awful lot of good in other ways. We need bridges in this country. We need less people on a payroll. Uh, it is. Uh, uh, it's interesting. Let's let's now look uh, at the Democrats. Uh, uh, first of all, a kind of preliminary question: You watched the DeSantis Gavin Newsom debate, which, if you're a political junkie like Hank and I, I'm sure you couldn't uh, you couldn't not watch it. Uh, what was that all about? In other words, why did each of them do that, and did it have any impact whatsoever on this race? has no impact on whatsoever on this race. All it does is uh, for, for junkies, for Republican political operatives and who are junkies by definition for politics, it makes them understand how easy it will be to rip Santo, uh, to Newsom apart should he become the, uh, should he, there be a vacancy and he become the nominee. Um, and all it did was make DeSantis look like a publicity hound because there was no, there was no substance to the event. It tried to position him as the, as a likely successor to, uh, as to the Trump candidacy, not to Trump's presidency, but to Trump's candidacy, which just didn't work. I mean, you, Trump is Trump, whether you like him or not. Unique phenomenon in American politics, um, unique phenomenon in international politics, and not replicable in any way, nor replaceable, frankly. Yeah, it's interesting when you look at the second choice of DeSantis support, supporters, eight out of ten of them moved to Trump. Whereas if you look at the second choice of, say, the small but not insignificant number of Chris Christie supporters, their second choice is Nikki Haley. Uh, Nikki Haley's supporters do uh, do not move to Trump. They move back to undecided. This is why I think that the Iowa caucuses uh, are going to have some impact. Only one week in between the Iowa caucuses uh, and the New Hampshire primary. And important to note that independents can vote in the New Hampshire Republican primary, and there is no Democratic primary to distract them because uh, they independents in New Hampshire tend to lean left, would be more inclined to vote in a Democratic primary than a Republican primary. The question is going to be whether twofold. One, did Nick Haley, Nikki Haley shooting herself in the foot late last week uh, make a substantial difference. I'm going to argue that it did. Uh, you know, she she not only fumbled a question on slavery in the Civil War, but she fumbled a question on the Confederate flag. Uh, but additionally, and this will be interesting from the point of view of, of uh, political science, her campaign is completely advertising-driven. In other words, there are no... There is no structure in Iowa. There's no, no, no precinct captains, no, no county chairman, no, no operation designed to turn out her vote. Uh, massive doses of broadcast television, cable television, digital advertising. This by tradition has, uh, while it may have some effect in, in New Hampshire, traditionally has not had effect uh, in Iowa. Let, let's, uh, uh, before we leave the, the, that debate, I guess I came away with it uh, with a view that it was very much like the 1960 debate. I mean, I thought given the weak hand he had to, to play, 
having to defend a California record. Uh, Gavin Newsom seems unflappable. Uh, I would even he got in some real zingers against DeSantis. Right. I, I think he actually won on style. Whereas DeSantis made the same mistake that Dick Nixon made in 1960. He thought that what you said was more important than how you looked. And he looked tight, sweaty, nervous, uh, under pressure. Uh, it was it was interesting from that point of view. Let, let's move, Hank, to the Democrats. Um, uh, are you certain Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee for president? I am certain today. <laughs> Um, I'm not a, uh, I'm, not, I'm not an insurance actuary. Um, I'm, that's not my business. What I do know historically is that no one gives up the presidency of the United States voluntarily. Um, the last time that uh, someone gave it up voluntarily without being under pressure was when uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson in 1968. And he, he, he even cushioned his, his uh, leaving by saying he wouldn't accept the nomination of his party. He will not seek nor will he accept was about his party first and the presidency second. You know, it's kind of interesting. Um, I don't, why would someone not want to be the most powerful person in the world? Anything a president does has an instant impact. I saw it myself um, in the White House. Um, it's not something you give up easily, and it is the place that everybody in the world wants to be. So I don't see that. I don't see him leaving what, and under any circumstance. I just don't think it happens that way. Uh, so uh, don't you think professional Democrats are concerned about uh, not only his inconsistent, shall we say, performance on the stump or in public, uh, the the impact of his policies, uh, rampant inflation, high energy prices, uh, the possibility of World War Three, uh, and particularly immigration and its impact on the states and cities? Uh, there has to be great nervousness within today's Democratic Party. There is no question but that Democrats are nervous. And the blabbers, the professional blabbers, who live by blabbing and sourcing to reporters of consequence, um, are busy. You know, they haven't had a moment's rest. Um, can Biden explain the national condition? He can't unless he faces Donald Trump or someone that he that he the polls would indicate he has some chance of beating in high intensity and highly driven electoral, high electoral vote states. Absent that, it's a problem. I mean, who else runs against him? Who else wins that? Uh, and it depends, frankly, on the on the uh, the, the, the status of the uh, legal cases that the former president may might be facing at any particular moment. So I think that there are a lot of intangibles. That's the way that he wins. That Joe Biden wins. If not. If there were another Republican in place, it's likely that he would have a much more difficult time winning, Might, would be my hunch. Yeah, um, you, you definitely have a, a situation in which, it, in which we get, if we get a Trump-Biden rematch, both men enter the contest with very intense bases, but also very, uh, both extremely polarizing. You and I talked go ahead. Roger, but hold on, let me, let me just add this, not to interrupt you, forgive me, but to put this in context, it is the changing nature of the Democratic Party and the stability of the Republicans over the last two cycles, frankly, that tells the tale. The Democrat Party, both parties are in trouble for different reasons as entities, but the Democrats are in much more trouble right now. <clears throat> they have a standard bearer, Joe Biden, who is in his 80s, um, making him out of touch with, generationally, with large, large segments of that party. 
He's got to appeal to specific groups in order to increase their intensity of turnout to be successful. If you look at the, the numbers in, in the last presidential go-around, he needs to do that. That's not likely based upon polls today. Um, the Israel versus, uh, versus Hamas, or which is really the Israel versus Iran war going on right now, which is a proxy battle with, without which the United States would absolutely be at war with Iran, um, you know, is, 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 is turning off uh, a whole whole generation, younger generations of people, frankly, who should uh, shut up because they paid no price and borne no burden and have done no investment in this country, this extraordinary nation and its future overall. Um, that plus the lack of intensity by African-Americans and we see in data puts him in very serious, very, very serious trouble of losing an election. Question is, is it Trump? Trump he can beat. Is it someone else? We don't know. We don't know. Yeah, I'm perplexed by the by the administration's seeming double game. The Democratic Party under Harry Truman is the party uh, that that uh, under which Israel was founded. Uh, yet we are unfree. We unfroze six billion dollars of assets for Iran. We're in the midst of unfreezing another hundred billion dollars. We're taking them uh, at their word that this money will be used for non-terrorist purposes. Sorry, I, I don't believe it. Uh, yet, uh, and we seem to be putting restraints on Israel and their ability to defend themselves, which I really find outrageous. Right. Uh, yet, the most recent survey I saw showed that in a matchup with Joe Biden, uh, Donald Trump only receives 22 percent uh, of the American Jewish vote. Well, because they're, they're, the 11th commandment is thou shalt be democratic. But the larger issues, if you if you get out of the uh, out of the the uh, the idiotic politics of it, and you look at the long term problem for the United States of America. Nothing has changed since 1948. Control of the Mediterranean basin is critical to American security internationally. Simple. We lose control of the Mediterranean basin, which is what Iran understands, which is what the Syrians, excuse me, the Russians understand. That's why they're in Syria. We lose control. We'll be eating grass here in five years. Don't even think about it otherwise. Our enemy is Iran, unquestionably so. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a conflict that goes back into the 40s, frankly, if you look at the history of the region. Um, and the Israelis are the only choice we have. We have no other option. Should they fail, should they not defeat Hezbollah and Hamas, um, and should the Houthis go unchallenged and unchecked and not killed? Um, we are in very serious trouble. We are as close to World War III as we have been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. The only reason the world hasn't blown up is because of this most extraordinary nation um, that has done so much to protect the rest of the world with its own foibles. We've, been, we've made some mistakes, but overall, this nation has kept the world safe through a balance of power where strength um, has, has prevailed and weakness has failed. Um, and we are now at a point of where the, we're being tested. If the Israelis fail, we're finished here. It is only a matter of time before our enemies laugh hysterically and wind up on the East Coast. It's just a matter of time. Or the squeeze play. China on one side threatening the West Coast, uh, the, our enemies in the Middle East, and with their Russian helpers uh, challenging the East Coast. If Americans don't believe this, they're deluding themselves. And 9-11 proves that our enemies can cross those, those oceans. Um, we didn't believe it before, but we should really believe it now. Uh, I, I really could not uh, agree more. Uh, Hank, last time I had you on, uh, you referred to the toxic mix uh, for Democrats that included uh, open borders, 
uh, and mass illegal migration. We're seeing that playing out in the streets of New York right now. Uh, what is the impact of that on election 2024? Um, no one cares if New York you know, nationally blows up. I mean, it's just not important to them. But what is important is chaos. <clears throat> and what we do know, Roger, historically, and you, you've certainly been a participant in these events, is that when there is chaos, people tend to vote much more conservatively. They become more afraid. Um, the Republicans have become the party of the white Catholic working man in this country, which is a, and women, which is a tremendous shift if you look at our history going back to, to Al Smith and the anti-Catholicism that, that created the modern, Republic, modern Democrat Party. Um, those folks are beside themselves because they see their opportunities being taken away by people who have no right to be here from their perspective. The end result of that is a probably vote against the cities where the migrants are located, a, a, a vote for Republicans wherever possible, where it's logical, because of a fear that crime is getting out of control, whether it is or is not, and that the chaos is unwarranted and must be defended against. Those are moments when Republicans tend to do well. Ask Richard Nixon, may he rest in peace, where, you know, Nixon's the one. Those ads of 1968 became the benchmark um, for ads of the future where, because that, that campaign created the negative ad as we know it. So that's where we're going. That chaos will be the subject of independent expenditure campaigns across the country by sources with all kinds of money going into 2024. We haven't even begun to see it, but that chaos will un- is, the, is the thing that could, frankly, undo Joe Biden and undo Democrats. The Senate, certainly in play uh, for the Republicans with an advantage there, the U.S. Senate, the U.S. House, a toss today. You'd have to give it to the Democrats. But who knows what will happen if the chaos and the sense that things are out of control largely a product of the migrants, um, continues. It does seem to be, as you put it, uh, a toxic mix. Uh, because all politics is local, let me, uh, let me pitch you a curveball. Uh, Mayor Eric Adams uh, seems to be mired in various problems. There's a corruption scandal. Uh, there's a, a crime spike. Uh, there's uh, uh, illegal immigrants destroying his budget uh, and causing chaos in every borough. Uh, I stress for this broadcast uh, that there are no charges uh, against Mayor Adams. No, he's not been charged with any crime, nor has he been convicted of any crime. But uh, these stories are not good. Uh, and then I saw in the New York Post a story of, of, of a poll because in the event that Adams was had to step down, uh, you would have you would not have Republican and Democrat primaries the way you normally would have, but in a special election, you would have what they call uh, in California a a jungle election in which everybody of all parties uh, runs at the same time. Uh, and the poll that I saw showed former Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, with the largest number of votes. Uh, is a comeback? by Andrew Cuomo, who has $60 million in campaign funds in the bank. Is that a real viable possibility? It is an absolutely viable possibility, and it depends to a large extent, like all possibilities on the kind of campaign would he run, were he to be in play. It has to be a campaign that says, look, uh, should, and this is only should the the, the incumbent Mayor Adams, um, unfortunately for him or for whomever, uh, not be in office at the time because of a, who knows what. I don't want to speculate on that. But should that be the case, Andrew Cuomo's argument is a very simple one. Look, 
It's 2024. I'm running for this office. We have real problems. We've got a budget problem. We've got a spike in some kinds of crimes. People feel uncomfortable. I'm an expert on homelessness. I can deal with it. I'm an expert on infrastructure. I can fix it. I'm an expert on organizing things. I can fix the crime issue, make our police work, that they're respectful to the community and doing their job. I'm only asking you to let me stay in office until the elections in 2025. And if you like what I've done, we can talk about it then. But in the meantime, I'm here to fix the problems and bring us back together again. I know I've made some mistakes, but I'm the right guy for this moment because I know how to make things work. That's his argument. If he strays from that, he gets killed. (laughs) It's simple. If he stays to that argument, he has a higher probability of winning. He has loyalty among African-American voters. Uh, They trust him. They also think he was wronged. Uh, Other people certainly do. Um, If he makes it, I can fix the moment problem issue. It's going to be tough to get past him. But if he takes a longer view, he has uh, it creates that great wedge opening, Roger, that you and I know a lot about where someone can walk in and smack him and get away with it. That's the kind of campaign he's got to run. And it's got to be a faith based campaign that brings people together, believing that the religion called New York, which put more 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 immigrants into play across the country and help create this most extraordinary nation in the 20th century. Um, he's got to make that real for people. He's got to make people believe. You know, They have this sense about the mayor of New York City, that, that, and, and I, there are plenty of examples of this, Koch, Giuliani, and others, that when they go to sleep at night, he turns the lights off, and when they wake up in the morning, he turns the lights on. Someone's got to make people feel that way, especially after the trauma they're presently experiencing. All right. Unfortunately, we're out of time because I could talk politics with Hank Shankoff forever. Hank, thank you so much for joining us on the Roger Stone Show. Folks, uh, on behalf of Mrs. Stone and I and the entire family at 77 WABC, uh, let me wish you a happy, healthy and safe new year. And please hold on because my great friend Joe Piscopo is going to be right along with Sundays with Sinatra.